Welcome to the Iowa Idea Podcast. Join host Matt Arnold for in-depth conversations with artists, designers, entrepreneurs, and civic leaders as he explores how they approach their craft and represent a modern version of the Iowa Idea. This podcast tells the stories of Iowa natives, transplants, and friends who demonstrate the Iowa Idea in the 21st century. of design. In this episode of the Iowa Idea Podcast, I'm joined by Nate Cady. Nate is the Director of Business Development for Build a Suit Incorporated, a construction management and real estate development firm based in Bettendorf in Coralville, Iowa. Nate is an active venture capital investor in several corridor businesses and real estate developments, including Involta, Higher Learning Technologies, Pullman Bar and Diner, St. Birch Tavern, Big Grove Brewery, and Tailgate Clothing, among others. Born and raised in the Iowa City area and attending the University of Iowa, Nate was a student athlete and graduated with a BA in History and a Secondary Education Social Studies Teaching Certificate from the College of Education. As a collegiate athlete, Nate was a football team captain, earned both academic and athletic first-team All-American honors, and is the all-time leading scorer in Iowa football history and is a member of both the Iowa High School Athletic Association Hall of Fame and the University of Iowa Athletics Hall of Fame. Nate was the 65th overall selection in the 2004 NFL Draft. He went on to play nine seasons for the San Diego Chargers and was twice selected to the Pro Bowl. Upon retirement from the NFL in 2013, Nate moved back to Iowa City and completed his MBA from the University of Iowa's Tippy School of Business. We dig into Nate's journey as a kicker, being the first scholarship offer under Kirk Ferentz at Iowa, his interest in history, education, business, collaboration, and design. We talk about Zen and the art of archery and the lessons Nate has applied to kicking and business. We explore the power of experiences that bring together the intersection of brand, history, and experiential design. I appreciated Nate's willingness to share his insights and lessons with Tailgate Clothing as well as his belief in the importance of design, collaboration, and community in business. I was especially excited to hear more about Birch the Bear. <gasps> Long before Herky, Iowa's first football mascot was a live bear. Birch the Bear has inspired brewing and local supper clubs. It was a pleasure having Nate on the podcast. I hope you enjoy the episode. Nate, thanks so much for joining me on the Iowa Idea Podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here. If you don't mind, for our listeners, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, you bet. I'm uh, born and raised, uh, I guess, Coralvillian, but we kind of blend together with with Iowa Cityans here in the eastern Iowa area. But born and raised, went to Iowa City West High School and uh, went to the University of Iowa played football and Kirk Ferentz's early part of his uh, career was his actually his first ever uh, recruit that he signed. You know, that's probably not what he wanted was a skinny little kicker, hometown kicker to be his first recruit. Um, but Hey, he got me stuck, uh, you know, stuck with me through my four years there, had a, had a fun run with coach Ferentz and went on and played uh, nine years in the national football league out in San Diego and have uh, been out of the NFL now eight years and enjoyed moving back to, to Iowa, to the Iowa City area, um, and, you know, enjoying a, a business career now, working in 
variety of different industries, you know, creating small businesses and, and pitching in here in the community uh, as, as best I can, where I can bring value. So um, yeah, it's kind of the, the, the short, the short version there. Thanks. Yeah. A lot that I, I want to dig into, but I, I'm, I'm uh, thankful that you did. T- I didn't realize you were uh, coach Ferentz's first recruit. I knew you were, you were on the team for like, so you lived through quite 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 a kind of roller coaster of Iowa football right the the very beginning of of Ferentz era to the 2002 season was that itself was probably pretty wild ride yeah it was I get asked a lot like what was my you know favorite favorite memories or favorite experiences at an Iowa football player I think it you know it really was sort of this the whole four years and the trajectory of it and the and the journey coming in and you know, like I said, I was part of Coach Ferentz's would have been his second year, but kind of his, his first year of his first recruiting class and the, the program at that point, just hard to think, just thinking of the success over the last 40 years under Hayden Fry and Kirk Ferentz, you know, was in that transition period, right, where the, the team was, was sort of down, wasn't doing very well. And I had won, I think, one or two games under Kirk his first year. You know, Hayden's last year wasn't that great. Um, and really, it was just, you know, the program was down here and just came in with a great group of guys and bought into the way that, Coach Ferentz was building things at the, within the program and, you know, came through through it and built it up and then hit that 2002 year, like you said, where, you know, we were undefeated in the Big Ten, won a Big Ten championship and played the BCS Bowl game and, you know, enjoyed that sort of success. So it was really kind of coming in at that baseline level and, and being a part of helping build that program back up. And, of course, you know, Coach Ferentz has, has had an amazing, illustrious career since then, and it's been a, an awful lot of fun to have been able to root those guys on and, um, and see the success that they've had throughout his entire career. Uh, just out of curiosity, as a football player uh, and being an alum at Iowa, what what is it like? Is it uh, what's it like being a fan uh, at a game? Can you can you relax, or does does it bring back <laughs> like tense tense memories of of playing? A little bit. I, I joke with people. It look kicking looks so easy when you're up there in the 60th row. You know, I'm like it's not that it's not that easy. You got the when you're down the field, the wind's blowing and the pressure and all the you know the grass is different and all that sort of stuff. But it's a lot of fun. You know, I I I also tell people that I think I'm the luckiest college football fan out there. You know, being a guy that um, you know grew up it's his hometown team and I live back here. I got to take my boys to the game and yet I have my my old college coach, you know, is still coaching and, you know, a lot of, you know, being able to root him on when I was playing in the NFL and come back and watch him go. And I have three or four former players that I played with at Iowa that are now assistant coaches under Kirk. LeVar Woods is a great friend of mine. He's a special teams coordinator. So I get to come back, you know, to this quintessential, really one of the great sports environments in the United States, you know, six or seven Saturdays, a, a year to Kinnick, enjoy with friends and family, have a few cold beers before and after the game. And, you know, it's a, it's really kind of a, uh, you know, a dream, dream thing for a, for a sports fan, for sure. Thanks. And uh, so we'll, we'll throw this out there for folks that don't understand the magic of Iowa city, but uh, during your NFL career, you've spent most of it in San Diego and you, you, you chose to move back to Iowa city. Can you, can you tell me why Iowa city is so much better than Southern California? Yeah. I always caught a lot of crap from my San Diego teammates. Cause I was probably the only person on the team that, vacation when the off season hit back in, in Iowa, you know, leaving 65 degrees and sunny in San Diego in the, in the ocean to, to, you know, blizzardy Iowa city. But no, I mean, I think, uh, you know, a lot of factors, I, I was 
frankly, ready to go to get out of town when my college career was over, having been born and raised here and probably like a lot of, a lot of Iowans. Um, I was, you know, interested and excited to see different parts of the country. And of course, being drafted out in San Diego through the NFL draft. And, you know, that's, you know, the 32 places you can land in the NFL, it's gotta be one of the better ones, right? Um, being out there was, was great. Um, the weather's amazing, met a lot of great people, you know, the, just the geography and the different things you can do are a lot of fun. Um, but you also sort of over, slowly over time, you know, my almost 10 years out there, you, you, you come to really appreciate the things that we have back here in the Midwest and in Iowa and, and a smaller community. Um, I think the biggest thing is just this, you know, when you're in San Diego, it seems like a lot of people, not most of the people that I sort of interact with or cross paths with are from somewhere else, right? Like they, you know, the, the, yeah, there's a lot of born and raised San Diegans that are still out there and, and pitching in and building things and businesses and projects and all that great stuff. But there were, weren't nearly as many of them as you come across here in, you know, Iowa City, Cedar Rapids, Des Moines, wherever you're at. Um, and, and that was something I really came to appreciate and something that I really appreciate now in my professional career is just this sort of, um, you know, rootedness, this con connectivity, not only amongst each other, but connected to community and, and the history and the traditions of, of a place and people kind of rowing in the same boat to build something together. Um, I think, you know, solve hard problems together, those sort of things. I, that's something I really appreciate about being back here in Iowa City. And then just sort of, I wouldn't really call it a pace of life back here, but I would maybe more call it kind of a convenience sort of ease of life thing. I, I think one thing we love about Iowa City is there's a great arts and culture scene here. Um, you know, there's, you can go to the shows, you can obviously do the, the sports, there's youth sports access and those sort of things. And you don't have to sit in I-5 freeway traffic to go find it and battle millions of people and those sort of things. So I think, um, you know, we have a little bit of the, the best of both worlds being here where it's just, yeah, you can get where you need to get to easily. You can connect with the people you need to connect with. Um, and that's something I really come to appreciate about being back here uh, in the Midwest. And that was really one of the driving factors for us and, and why we wanted to relocate back here. Thanks. And when you were coming back, did you already have plans on uh, getting involved with businesses, launching businesses here? Was that was that part of your your game plan or was that a little bit more serendipity once you got back? Yeah, I, I think it may have been a byproduct of being a kicker and having a lot of time on your hands compared to like the other players on the team who are putting in game plans and all that other stuff. We just kind of sit there and twiddle our thumbs a lot. But, you know, I had a lot of downtime in the NFL, frankly, and, you know, really just kind of became interested in, I was a history major, you know, my undergrad in history and secondary uh, teaching social studies through the College of Education at Iowa, and, you know, had all, I had a lot of longstanding history in our family of teachers and educators, and I've, I've always loved that component, and, you know, before I got good at kicking was, that was what, you know, I planned on doing is getting involved in education, and, um, you know, it was, uh, you know, that ended up not being the thing that I got into full time. But while I was in the NFL, I just became interested in business and, and building things, started investing in some real estate and a variety of other things. And um, actually had helped start a, a, a restaurant, invested in a what I call kind of Main Street, you know, ground level small business in Iowa City called Shorts. The, the restaurant's still there. I've since then sold my ownership back to the, to the other current owners, but kind of got some involvement there and kind of starting businesses, building businesses on a really small scale investing. And yeah, I knew that, um, you know, had, had, had a good sort of survey of the opportunity that was back in the Iowa area once I got done and, and jumped in. Um, also, I, you know, had a lot of good mentors around me that encouraged me to, hey, you need to kind of take a, take a breather. When I did retire from the NFL and made that transition, let's kind of think about, you know, taking one step back and then hopefully taking a couple steps forward 
knowing that I had spent really, you know, a lot of my college days and obviously all my NFL days kind of honing a one particular very, you know, acute skill set, which was kicking a ball between two poles. And, and once you can no longer do that again, I had some injuries at the end of my career early, you know, you, you gotta, you gotta retool the toolkit, you know, because yeah, if you're a one trick pony, you can't keep you're looking for a new professional career. You gotta, you gotta find some new things you're good at. Right. And I went back to the university of Iowa, got my master's in business administration the two years after I retired from the NFL. And then just really started, you know, meeting new people in different industries and understanding what their day-to-day looked like, how, you know, what, what they were doing. And just kind of started to feel my way through, you know, entrepreneurship and business startup and different industries and, and kind of getting a, a clearer sense of what my path might look like post football. Thanks. I, I appreciate that. And uh, just kind of double checking my list here. So, and you had mentioned shorts, got shorts off the, off the ground. Uh, then Pullman, right? Were you involved with Pullman? Yeah. Yeah. So we, you know, I've, I've been really lucky. I think one of the, I would kind of call it, you know, backbones of my kind of entrepreneurial uh, endeavors, you know, business strategy is, is really, you know, the, the power of the partnership and the collaboration. I've, I've got a great group of friends who I grew up with and college buddies with that are some of the best restaurant operators, I think, you know, probably in the United States, certainly in this community, uh, Matt Swift and a few others that, you know, own and manage, you know, probably almost a dozen different restaurants around the area. Uh, Big Grove Brewery um, is another real notable one. And, you know, those guys have a real skill set in, in, in managing the business. I, you know, through business school and some other things have sort of built up a a skill set and some value around marketing and branding and uh, business strategy and business development and those sort of things and kind of coupled, you know, what, what I had built up as a strength with, with their ability to operate these businesses. And that's, you know, Pullman is one of the businesses that we've, that I'm a part of and have invested in um, St. Birch Tavern um, also in, in downtown Iowa city uh, tailgate clothing was another one um, not in the restaurant industry, but, but, but other other place too, but just kind of those main street businesses. So yeah, I kind of built up a, a little bit of a portfolio of those sort of small businesses that we've been a part of and kind of thinking about that in a larger sense of, um, you know, the impact that th- those businesses can also have on a community beyond just a, a good return on investment. Yeah, thanks. And Matt has been a guest on, uh, on the podcast as well. And just, yeah, big awesome. fan of what what he's doing also had Andy joint on to get the, yeah, yeah, the inside the brewer, dope yeah. on, on brewing and uh, whole crew. yeah, we, um, so my, my group of friends uh, are huge fans of the Birch story. So obviously we, we yeah. had, we had to get to St. Birch when it opened so excited. Uh, and I'm so afraid that I'll fumble this. Do you mind giving the story of, <laughs> of Birch? Yeah, I love in business, especially in communities, college community like Iowa City, I mean, I think what makes universities while we're tracked, why uh, either your alumni or just a fan or, you know, someone lives in the town. I mean, there's such a rich history, right? And traditions and that's, you know, you go to the game and it's not just about the score, right? It's about the homecoming parades and the marching band and the, you know, playing the Niall Kinnick speech up, you know, before the game, like those sort of things, right? They get your heart pumping, the hair starts standing up on your arms a little bit. That's what makes the college experience really special, you know, and um, being an old history major, I kind of like when the opportunity presents itself, the ability to, you know, weave those stories into the brand a little bit. And there's this really amazing uh, story that not many people had known. There'd been a little bit of reporting about it, about what, you know, what's called, you know, Iowa's first original mascot, 
um, which is when the football team kind of back at the turn of the century, uh, one of the players came from Montana and brought this live black bear um, in with him on the, on the train station. You can picture this thing pulling up on the, you know, on the train <laughs> depot there south of town and getting out with the, with the black bear cub that he carted across the country. And of course, back in those days, you know, the reason why a lot of mascots are animals, right? Is because they're, you know, they're real animals. They weren't dressed up in, in stuffed costumes like we know of a Herky these days. That's just the way uh, professional and collegiate teams had, had done it, right? Is, you know, you get the real live mascot that hangs out with the team for a bit. So they brought this bear in from Montana and they called him, they named him Birch. And at that time, the, you know, the, the Kinnick Stadium hadn't been built yet. They played down those folks familiar with Iowa City and the university right along the river where the English philosophy building is currently and they had some grandstands and the and Birch lived underneath the grandstand and um as as black bears do he got fed and he got bigger and he got more uh <laughs> he got a little bit more um rambunctious and they take him to games and there's reports of the in the daily island of him biting opposing teams ankles and couldn't control him and those sort of things but you know the story really takes an interesting kind of morbid turn is that as he got bigger he got he escaped from his his cage during the winter um you know middle middle of winter february and you know there's all this reporting done tracking the bear where's he at they follow his footprints he goes up the Iowa river and then he goes onto the river those sort of things but you know whether it's folklore or true supposedly they found birch kind of paws up frozen you know dead had floated down the river down by hills and brought him in you know stuffed him put him at mcbride hall <laughs> at that point in time and uh, but it's just this really cool story of Birch the Bear, Iowa's original mascot. So when we went and worked on kind of bringing the brand to life and how do we weave that story through it, um, we work with a, a branding agency out of um, Atlanta, Georgia, that does an amazing job of kind of bringing some of these caricatures to life and, and all that and just kind of weaving it into the narrative. We just felt like, you know, being in where St. Birch Tavern is at, being in the heart of downtown Iowa City next to campus and, you know, there's a lot of kind of the you know, it's just sort of celebrating the spirit of, of the university and, um, you know, and, and, you know, tavern kind of supper club. And it's been fun. I think it's been, really been um, received well. And, you know, we, we want to kind of use these restaurants as kind of a vehicle to, to tell the story and keep some of these, uh, these spirits and traditions alive and a place where people can come celebrate them together when they're back in town, you know, celebrating the university. Thanks. Yeah, that's great. Actually, one of, one of our friends, uh, after we discovered the story, one of our friends uh, uh, is now just referred to as, as Birch. Because <laughs> I like it. So, uh, that's a good nickname. Of course, Big yeah. Rove's done a beer, Birch, Birch the yeah. Bear, the beer, you know, and all that stuff. So it's, it's been a lot of fun. And, um, you know, we, we, uh, we love being a, being a part of kind of helping keep that fun, fun story alive. On the design side, uh, who who commissioned the neon light with with Saint Birch? Uh, that that to me is 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 just like brings it all together. Yeah, so we kind of wanted to kind of tongue in cheek sort of deify Birch, you know, like he's yeah. this saint now, you know, and it was great. But this now this amazing company work with out of Atlanta did it, and then there's um, at the time Nesper Signs and Cedar Rapids had a really talented neon artist, and we kind of you know they did the design, and then the artist helped kind of pull it and bring it to life, and. Yeah, we've got a cool one right as you come in the door there of, of Birch the Saint, and then there's another one down in the what we call the den, which is sort of our cocktail lounge in the in the lower level basement. It's a lot of old stone exposed, really a cool space. Um, another cool piece of neon down there as well. So, and that's the fun stuff. I always joke with my business partners that I always get to do the fun stuff, and then once <laughs> once the business is kind of launched and 
and created. And, you know, I, I become like a cheerleader and just a guy that's there, you know, drinking beer and rooting everybody on and, and all that stuff. So it's, um, it, it's a lot of fun and, but not to poo poo. You said you had Matt on and those guys, but they, you know, they were doing an amazing job that the team and everybody on the ground of, of operating the businesses. And, you know, we take a lot of pride in, um, you know, how we can contribute to the, the street level scene of Iowa yep. city and hopefully be a, be a place, um, that helps, you know, improve the quality of life for folks that live here and folks that visit. Thanks. Uh, fairly recently, you had posted it about your experience with, with tailgate, launching tailgate, lessons learned, also the intersectionality of history, as we were talking about. Uh, if you don't mind, you just uh, share with the listener a couple of the big lessons you learned with your uh, launching tailgate, selling it, and then also it closing uh, just yeah. as an entrepreneur. Yeah, absolutely. So tailgate was a, a really awesome, fun project. I just got introduced to Todd Snyder, who's a Iowa born, um, fashion designer. I think he's kind of one of these unique, uh, success stories that maybe a whole lot of people don't know about, but he's, you know, really one of the world world renowned men's fashion designers. At the time I got introduced to him, he was the head men's fashion designer, Jake crew. Um, and now he's the head men's fashion designer for his own label, um, Todd Snyder. And really the backbone of his work is kind of Americana, you know, classic looks done. You know, he's been famous for a lot of really cool collaborations with L.L. Bean and Timex and Champion and a variety of others. But Todd's, uh, you know, beyond a fashion designer is an entrepreneur at heart. And he had started this company back in the 80s called Tailgate Clothing. And what they would do is go into the vaults of um, old univer of universities and find kind of these defunct logos and, you know, old mascots and pictures from yearbooks and game programs and created this, what, it, what at the time was called the college uh, vault and, you know, do all the licensing for all these universities for these cool old kind of vintage logos. And then tailgate for its first 20 or so odd years um, was essentially just would white label these t-shirts to larger uh, companies that didn't want to deal with all the licensing issues with the different universities. So they would, you know, for Old Navy and Gap and you name it, you know, a variety of others, they would, you know, make these cool looking vintage. And then just the universities, also like Coca-Cola and, you know, Americana sort of things. And you put, everybody's gone through these stores has seen, seen these sort of t-shirts out there, kind of the, you know, the faded vintage Coca-Cola sort of thing. They do all the licensing, they print, the, get the t-shirts done, fitted a little bit different or better than your, you know, kind of boxy Gildan 100% cotton shirt. Um, but then I got connected with Todd and they had just started about a year, year and a half ago looking at, you know, do they want to extend the brand and start getting into, you know, more of a, you know, building that tailgate brand, doing e-commerce uh, exclusively for tailgate. And then of course doing some brick and mortar stores. So I had, you know, the experience with Pullman and shorts and a few others. And, you know, I thought it was like a home run idea to, you know, let's bring this really amazingly designed space, almost kind of museum quality. We curated a lot of unique, you know, old letterman's jackets, frame stuff, got work down at the archives of the university, getting a lot of cool images and had great interior designers in the space. It's kind of experiential retail. You know, you come in and there's all these amazing tailgate t-shirts and sweatshirts and all this awesome stuff. And but you're walking in as an alumni and you're like, oh, you're seeing pictures of Forrest Devashevsky and Niall Kinnick and you know, all, the, all these sort of things on the wall. And we pulled it off. We, we, I got introduced Todd. I helped, you know, we got the location right on um, Clinton Street, across the street from the old Capitol and, you know, hired some great folks and the store was rocking and rolling for its first two years. And then um, we all got acquired uh, by American Eagle. 
um, after our second year. And that kind of, you know, obviously when that happens, you sort of ceases your involvement and the store uh, remained open for another five years, I think seven or eight years total, but had just recently, unfortunately, after COVID, uh, American Eagle had, had opened, I guess, to back up a little bit, had opened five more tailgate brick and mortar locations around the United States. So there's one in Madison and Knoxville and Athens, Georgia. There's actually a really cool one in Jordan Creek Mall in Des Moines that had Iowa State and Iowa gear. So, you know, like, like anything, it kind of, when the larger corporation um, got it, it, you know, you lose a little bit of the, you know, the grassroots element of it and, and a variety of other factors. And, um, you know, the, the store just didn't have any more, more runway to it in American Eagle's eyes. So it ended up closing um, uh, just a month or two ago, right on the heels of COVID, uh, which is fine. I mean, I think these things, you know, not all businesses are built to last forever. And it, it held a special place in my heart because it was one of the first business projects I really tackled head on post NFL and, you know, learned a lot of great lessons about building a team around you of collaborators. And, and then to me, really, what I really look for is what I call these sort of intersections where a lot of the, you know, sort of the, you know, that's where the, the big wow factor can happen in business. I think from a branding, you know, brand development, brand identity perspective and a business strategy perspective, if you can kind of intersect, uh, history with fashion or things that you might in unexpected intersections too, right? So history with fashion or, you know, experience with brick and mortar retail and, you know, all these sort of, you know, sports with fashion that you might not even think about either. And I think tailgate kind of checked a lot of those boxes and um, it taught me some valuable lessons about that as I, as I go forward into other business ventures as well. And, um, and, and it was just fun, you know, being a, a local boy and a history major and, and all those sort of things. It was a, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, from a from a design side, it was yeah, it was just so and like you said, from a kind of an experience standpoint, just so well done. And you know, it just the way it was able to evoke and pull on these these other Iowa elements. And uh, I appreciate you talking about kind of the almost the defunct mascots or old because some of the some of the images like that could have been from the the forties or fifties uh, were 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 great images. I had a, I know I had a couple uh, uh, Iowa Rose Bowl shirts uh, from yeah, the, from the fifties. Cool, I'm glad you brought that up. That was one of the you know more fun components of it. We, you know, I think it was the second year the store was open was the year that the Hawkeyes went to the Rose Bowl and you know, you kind of, you see it, maybe the stars are aligning here, maybe they could go. And I remember, you know, you're going back and you're digging up old Rose Bowl buttons and, and, you know, pictures and brochures, not only online, but down at the university archives. And you're figuring out, you know, handing that back off to graphic, you know, fashion designers in New York city who are then kind of putting a, a little riff on it and spin on it. I think we sold like in a matter of a week, week and a half, almost like $200,000 worth of old vintage Iowa Rose Bowl stuff the year they went to the Rose Bowl, you know, and I mean, you got to get it cleared with the, you know, the Rose Bowl licensing people. And so, I mean, there's, there's all these things that you kind of learn. You look at a company like that, oh, that, that should be easy. Let's go print that off. But like, no, you got to get the university license, the Rose Bowl license. You got to, you know, find a way to get these things printed quick. Cause there's only a short window there where you can, you know, sell these t-shirts before people are right. going off to the Rose Bowl itself. And um, so no, it was a great, great experience. Le learned an awful lot. And, you know, hopefully, you know, the store, um, was it was a good addition to the to the community while it was here what do you th from from this experience i mean so many different things like you said launching acquisition uh see, seeing it close but what do you what do you think your biggest lesson or, or biggest insight that you'll carry with you uh to your next business venture i would say for tailgate was really the importance of design um and i and i use the word design in a in a 
in a variety of senses. I think there's a lot for sort of people that are in the, you know, thinking about starting a business or entrepreneurship about how you design. I'm not talking about visually, but just the architecture of the business itself. Um, yeah. and how, and how you put the proper building blocks together. You know, some of that is, or, or a good chunk of it is, you know, your team, you know, it's the, who, are, who, who is sitting in certain seats and, you know, are you putting people on the team that complement your strengths or weaknesses, um, in the, in that sort of way. And are you, you know, are you putting, are you designing a business that's, you know, not just something you have in your head because you think it's cool, but are you designing a business because it's meeting, you know, some sort of unmet need or want in the marketplace, right? That's kind of like business startup one-on-one is you, you know, you don't, you don't fashion the, the key and go help to find a lock, right? You find, you find a lock and then you, then you, then you make a key that fits into it, you know? And I think that sort of design process of how you, you know, you put together a business and what, what are the products, how, you know, what's the pricing, you know, what, you know, from when you're doing a, a store, like we really felt we could win by creating a retail experience where people came in and just, you know, the design of the store itself was like becoming like, holy cow, this is unlike anything I've ever seen. So I think, you know, the, the architecture of the business design, how the business itself is created and put together is really important. Then of course, like product design and interior design and graphic design and, and all those sort of things that I've really, frankly, become kind of a nerd, nerd about and and really uh, particular about, um, you know, th- that I think really shown through in the tailgate application and, you know, our lessons that I've sort of learned and try to carry over. I think you can really, you can really stand out if it's done right. And it's not, you know, I think there's, you, you could pay $500,000 to some world famous interior designer or something to design some sort of, in, you know, space to a restaurant or a retail shop, but it also has to, it has to hit the right note and the right tone too. It just, it just can't be fancy or it just can't be the most expensive chair or whatever. It just, it all kind of has to work together. And we talk a lot about that at the restaurant. It's like, okay, you start with the name and then it's the, the font, you know, the logo and it's the color scheme, but then how does that translate to how it's going to look on the menu and the signage and, and then, but also it has to make sure it fits with the, you know, the emotions and the things that you want people to feel when they walk into the space and it all, it all kind of has to work together. And, you know, when I'm involved with the projects, I, I kind of view myself a little bit more as kind of like a, maybe like a producer or a, a manager would be on like a movie set. Like I, I'm not the one that's like, I don't pretend to have like this, the creative bone to do, you know, one or all of these sort of things. I, I try to like get out of the way, but kind of get, provide sort of a broad narrative and then find the, the really talented people that can kind of help pull and piece some of that stuff together, you know? Um, so really learning, you know, the importance of all those different elements that go into, you know, to really good design and, and the different facets that, that that means. Yeah, thank you. And I love I love hearing that because, you know, my my day job is uh, I focus on the space of uh, brand strategy, human centered design and innovation where those kind sure. of elements come together. And and that's uh, I really appreciate what you're saying, because one of the quotes from Steve Jobs that I I help people is design is how the whole thing works, right? It's not, it's not just the presentation layer or sometimes a lot, especially in digital business, we'll hear, Oh, uh, we can pretty it up later. Right. But no, design it like from the core, how is this going to work? What problem is it solving? And, and as you said, just being super intentional about what problem are we solving? What are the customer needs? What are their goals and how, how do we help? And then staying like kind of laser focused on that. And then uh, I can see it too. Like, and I told Matt this as well, like the things that I love about uh, the restaurants, especially Big Grove too, is the the execution on how a whole 
system comes together uh and a feeling from big grove and also like saint birch too i, I appreciate like, how how does a logo degrade or you know how is it seen from street level how is it seen on a menu and then what emotions might it evoke for for folks there so really appreciate that yeah One, i think the big the big understanding in the restaurant world around that you, you mentioned the you know the business case for something or why people go do something and kind of understanding that at a fundamental level. I think one of the big things that we talk a lot about within our, you know, our team, the hospitality team that we do do a restaurant work with is, you know, there's this fundamental understanding of, you know, people aren't coming out to Birch or Big Grove, you know, the locations because they want to eat a cheeseburger. I mean, or, or eat some oysters or have some beer. I mean, that's, that's part of it, but they're really coming. I think this has really been accentuated during COVID is that, the user case, the reason why they're coming is because they want to go out. They want to, they want to get out and they want to come and they want to have an experience. And, you know, I think that oftentimes gets, gets overlooked in, in the restaurant industry because people have, you know, this great lasagna recipe or they can think they can, you know, make a really good old fashioned, but it's like, yeah, that's, that's part of the reason why they're coming. But they also want like a, a great and unique environment where they can hang out and people come to restaurants, you know, on, on, we realized that in COVID, like, I miss the restaurant, you know, I can get the food at the curb and, you know, eat the food, but like, I want to get the heck away from my four kids. I want to get a babysitter. And like this day and age, if you have a babysitter and where else can you go? Right. You know, like right. you go on a walk with your wife and your friends, or you can go to the park or you can go to a restaurant and have a great meal. Like there's not that many like hangout places either. Like we want to create like great hangout places. Like you think about, Hey, where do you not, we're not talking to your buddies about, you know, where do we want to go eat tonight? It's like, Hey, where do we want to go get together tonight and have a good time? You know, and the food and the drink and is all part of it, but it's also the, you know, the ambiance and the music and the service and the hospitality and the the things around you when you're in the space that make make that what it is. And I think that, that that's a big part of what we do. Yeah, and uh, by chance, have you read the book When Coffee and Kale Compete? No, it sounds it, great. It get it gets into trying to really understand those deeper needs, and I think sometimes you know people might see like immediate competition, like you said, are we just competing against cheeseburger joints, right? And, yeah. and no, when we're looking at, at this more broadly to your perspective, no, we're competing at where are people going to spend their money for a night out for an experience or yeah. uh, how they're going to feel good about the money they spent that night, right? And so taking a, that different lens and, and then sometimes you know, like a great burger is just table stakes. Okay, that's a, that part's expected, right? But what else are we going to do to uh, kind of win them over and keep them coming back? So I, Absolutely. I love, I love that your team is is digging in on those types of things. Want to go back to your journey a little bit? Uh, uh, so, growing up Coralville, going to University of Iowa, and when when did you realize that uh, an NFL career might might be in play? Well, you know, I can promise you there's probably been never a kid that grows up, you know, wanting to be a kicker. <laughs> I can tell you that. So it wasn't like some lifelong goal. Um, that was like a lot of, you know, a lot of kids that just like sports growing up and, um, you know, was the guy out shooting a bunch of free throws in the driveway or, you know, hitting wiffle balls or, um, you know, whatever sport was soccer, you know, whatever sport was in season. Like as a kid growing up, I was just always very active, always doing it, was always probably the kid that, you know, could go spend an hour and a half, two hours, just kind of shooting hoops, you know, like you get in your own world and doing it and, you know, lo just love playing sports growing up. And then as, you know, you get into high school and like, like everybody does, you start specializing in, in different things and finding different skill sets. And 
Um, you know, I was a multi-sport athlete all the way through high school, but, you know, played soccer and done that a lot. And, um, you know, gotten to be too skinny and too much of a wimp and too slow on the football field to contribute a whole lot other places, but just got asked by our, our high school coach, like as a freshman, Hey, there's nobody on our sophomore team that can kick footballs. We know you play soccer. Do you want to give it a shot? And just went out and started kicking them. And again, sort of, I've always sort of had this OCD thing about me when I get something, you know, doing it, just want to do it and liked it and ended up buying one of these little portable holders, mechanical holders that you can put in the grass and a few footballs and, you know, kind of fell in love with doing it my freshman year. And Spent a lot of time and had some success on the sophomore team and then got asked to do it on the varsity as a sophomore and just really kind of fell into it and just loved going out and practicing it. You know, I think that's, I've worked with a lot of, you know, youth sports athletes and players, not only kickers, but everywhere else. It's like, there's only so much technique and um, things you can teach people in a lot of different elements. And um, I think things have changed a lot. I think it's harder for kids to stay in age, whether it's the devices or too much control by moms and dads like myself or whatever that looks like, but just this, concept of like there's the hoop there's the basketball you know go shoot see you later you know like that sort of thing and I just love doing it and then just kind of mostly self-taught and got pretty good at it and was lucky enough to um I've kind of been just at this unique time and in, in kicking you know is certainly always has been always will be sort of at the bottom of the totem pole but we're starting to become more prioritized from a recruiting perspective at the college level and um we had had a lot of success at Iowa City West High in football and our program was getting noticed and lucky lucky for me you know Iowa State had a need for a kicker at the time and offered me a scholarship uh, Dan McCarney was the head coach then and he's an Iowa City West High graduate and um, I think you're maybe trying to pluck a, a, a local kid out of the backyard <laughs> of Iowa City but I think they offered me and then I you know word got back to coach Ferentz who you know before that it was pretty commonplace or just, you know, bring in a kicker as a walk-on. And if you, you end up being the starter, you get a scholarship halfway through your career. But I think I kind of tried Coach Ferris's hand a little bit. Like, hey, we probably can't lose this local kid to the Cyclones. And then they ended up offering me a scholarship not long after Iowa State did. And, of course, it's sort of a no-brainer to, to pick that one up when they did. Oh, that's, that's great. Out of curiosity, what position did you play in soccer? I, I played up top. So I was the, okay. uh, you know, the goal scorer, but also the lazy one, you know, where you just kind of hang out waiting for the other guys to do the work and then <laughs> finish the thing off. But um, no, soccer was tons of fun. Played basketball in the winter. Uh, certainly a lot of, a lot of great memories. And, you know, I've always enjoyed, uh, you know, just being a part of a team and competing, you know, and it was, you know, great, great to be able to do that all, you know, all the way through high school. So, uh, you probably know this as an award winner, but from a trivia standpoint, I was fascinated to uh, that Lou Groza was also an offensive tackle. So he, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and so, yeah, so, the, so the top award in college for kicking is you know it's the Lou Groza award. I just figured he was always a kicker, and so going yeah. back, I can't imagine like thinking about like. I don't know when you were playing, did Robert Gallery ever get out there and try to kick a few <laughs> field goals? He he didn't, but you know, Robert Gallery's brother, Nick, was a great punter at Iowa before he was yeah. there. So there's <laughs> and then his, his younger brother was also a punter. Um right, right around the same time I was there. No, it's uh it's an interesting position that, that really has an interesting history if you look at it back mid-century, you know, all the way to where it is now. I mean, the you know, the an average in the NFL, um, well, I guess for a frame of reference, Jan Stenerud, um, the only true kicker in the NFL Hall of Fame had a career field goal percentage. He played in like the 70s and 80s. Um, career field goal percentage of around 71, 72%, I think. And if you have that percentage now in the NFL, you'd be fired in about two or three weeks. So 
just the, the ability, you know, that the Lou Groses who kicked it straight on and they played other positions. And then you have this influx of European soccer players and then people start specializing in it. You know, now these, you know, us born primarily, you know, athletes that are doing a bunch of stuff. I mean, they perfected this position, you know, where the success right now is, you know, for the really good ones is, you know, in the low 90 percentage rate. So it's uh, been interesting. It's, it's one of those unique things where, you know, perfection is sort of expected of each day. So that's a, that's a, that's a unique thing to, to kind of, to kind of dynamic to, to, to play on every Sunday when you go out there on the field. So um, this might've been like a year and a half ago. It was pre COVID year, year and a half ago, two years ago. Um, you were giving a talk locally. It was more about uh, kind of wellness overall. And uh, yeah. you had, you had mentioned uh, Zen and the art of archery uh, as sure. a, like an important component to your, your preparation. And again, I don't want to steal the punchline because I, I, but I thought it was really powerful for just folks to look at how, how they approach their work. Do you mind talking about one, what the book is, but, and, and then also how you applied it to your, to your kicking career? Yeah, sure. No, that's an incredibly influential book kind of in my life and certainly in my sports career. I, I got introduced to the book, uh, from a, a, a teacher at the time, early on in my college career, basically the, you know, the premise of the book, it's really short, easy to read, would highly recommend it to anyone looking to it. It's a Eugene Harrigal. He's a, a philosopher at the time. I think he's German born, but he goes basically long story short, he goes over to Japan and they learn kind of the practice of Zen through archery. But the, the main kind of fundamental element um, or philosophy of the book is you know, this idea of, you know, when you pull the, the archer's bow back with the arrow, you're not necessarily thinking about the result, about hitting, you know, about hitting the result, you know, the, the middle of the target. You're, you're thinking instead about what are the three, four, five, ten different process steps, the things that you need to do in order for the arrow to hit the target. And if you sort of check all those boxes off, then the, you know, in Zen speak, you know, the arrow sort of, in, in a sense, releases itself. And kind of hits the hits the target and you know they have this whole concept of not you know it's a zen concept of not having uh too willful of a will you know and that was something that really resonated to me you know sometimes in life you get you know pearls of wisdom that get introduced to you at just the right time and i was a you know a fresh a very ambitious sort of freshman in college these big dreams of being a, a college football star and i kind of struggled my first year at iowa and you know the, the book is kind of one of those aha moments where it's like i'm you know you're just kind of trying too hard and you, you can imagine if you're out there in front of 70,000 people at Kinnick and a few million on TV, how your mind can immediately sort of unravel and jump to the result, you know, both positive and negative. Like I can be the hero or I can, you know, I can picture my grandma up in the 50th row crying because her grandson just missed the kick, you know, like you start thinking about the results and you, you want it to be a certain way, but it really kind of forced to me about like, okay, what are the, you know, what are the exact things I need to do if the ball's on the, 35 yard line and it's second down, you know, what's my process look like then? What does my process look like when I'm coming out onto the field? What's my process look like right before I kick, kick the ball. And then, it, you know, it's not only like those physical sort of process things, but it's all, then it comes into like, what are you thinking about? You know, what's going through your head? How are you slowing your heart rate down? How are you breathing? You know, what are you thinking? You know, how are you thinking those sort of things? And it just really kind of took it all inward and just sort of, Hey, let's, let's not think about like, all these other things, the results of the actions or the wins or the losses or the field goal percentages or what comes from all those sort of things. Let's instead 
you know, let's look inward and let's think about those things that we can control and those process things. Um, and just, you know, kind of, we all kind of go through those walks and whether it's a professional career or sports or family where, you know, you kind of, you mature and you grow in your journey and those sort of things. And that was sort of a, a book that kind of, and a philosophy that sort of set me down on the right path. Thank you. Uh, yeah. One of the things too, and I've talked to some folks uh, about this is with your, with your sports background and uh, another guest on the show runs an improv theater in Minneapolis, but he also played college football. And one of the things that we're really interested in is the notion of practice, right? And mm-hmm. how, how much in business, like somebody might have a big talk that they have to give, but yeah. it's like they, they haven't rehearsed, right? They haven't gone through the steps. And we were just thinking about when it comes to improv comedy, uh, how much time you're rehearsing before you have a Saturday show or uh, for, for football, just thinking about the hours of practice for one hour of game time, right? You know, roughly three hours on, on a set, but all of the work that goes into the performance and, and just seeing like, it, it almost seems inverse in business is like not practicing or developing skills, but as somebody that has launched businesses has been, been a kicker, you have seen multiple sides of this. What's your take on, somebody's ability to practice or even go through those, those Zen archery steps in business? Yeah, that's a great, great question. Um, you know, to me, practice and preparation really go really hand in hand. They're, they're synonymous. Um, I always like to think of my practice and preparation and there's nothing more sort of, uh, organized or sequential than like an NFL season, right? You're playing, you know, now you play some Thursdays and those sort of things, but you have that your routine, if it's a Sunday game, you know, you're going to, the game's over, something's going to happen Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, all practice or preparation for what's going to happen then on Sunday for the big game, right? And I always like the view of, you know, doing the work and then that work then sort of transforms into, I call it kind of like that body armor when you're walking into the stadium on Sunday. You know, it's, it's, it's there and you kind of have that, and you know that you've done that and it's there to sort of protect you. And it's like that extra boost of confidence. And I think, that for professionals that are more advanced in their business career and those sort of things, we're all preparing for, for bigger moments or closing deals or a talk to the team or a big meeting, whatever that might be. I think practice and preparation is different for those folks than it is for a high school kicker, you know, who's earlier in their walk and, you know, and perfecting a skill set or, you know, a guy that's working on a certain thing or a student at the university that's studying business. Like they're, they're learning, you know, they're, they're practicing, they're doing some of those things. But I think, that practice and preparation is still even more so applicable because we all need that. There's all, there's always big moments where you got to have that extra, like I said, that extra bit of armor that you're going to put on knowing that you've put the work in and you've done it the right way. Um, you know, it's always been a great quote. That's, that's always been top of mind for me in sports and in business, which is practice with a purpose. I mean, there's one thing just to kind of check the boxes and, you know, show up at practice and, and do what maybe a coach is telling you, or you think you need to do, but like, is it thought out? Is, is it part of a bigger plan? You know, is it, you know, is it, is it working towards specific goals? Is it, is it, you know, deliberate practice, you know, that whole concept of, of deliberate practice. I think, I think that's critically important as well. And I, I mentor a lot of young kickers and that's something that I really encourage them to do is like, it's just not good enough now to go put 20 balls down on the field and kick them. Like, what do you want to work on today? Are you, you know, understand, be humble enough about your own skill set to know, like, what are your weaknesses? and get creative in how you want to attack those weaknesses and turn those into strengths. Are you struggling with kicking into the wind? Are you struggling with kicking off the right hash? Are you, you know, struggling with distance kicks or whatever that looks like? And let's, 
craft a unique plan so we can get better at those specific things. So um, I, I think that element of deliberate practice, practicing with the purpose, you know, again, that's kind of the physical meets the cerebral, you know, element of it. And um, I think that part is something that everyone can have with you, you know, through your whole life, regardless of what you're doing. Thanks. Yeah. And it was, as you were saying that it was just uh, reminded me of some of the work on uh, peak performance. Have you read peak performance? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And to your, yeah, it is. It's not just practice. It's with a purpose and it's getting feedback and also pushing yourself to the edge of your discomfort. Right. So what, what is, what am I uncomfortable about you? And you, you got to get comfortable with that and work on that skill. So I love, yeah, I love great, hearing that. I think of my biggest growth moments, you know, specifically as a kicker, and it certainly is the same for business where you, man, you, you know, you've gone, you missed a big kick or business. You feel like you've taken on more than you can. And you feel like the walls are, you know, kind of coming in. You got to kind of find a way to work through it and, or learn a new skill set. It's like that discomfort, you know, either running away from it or kind of leaning into it. That's where the most growth and the most development comes from. So yeah, ab absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, those, those philosophies are, you know, incredibly applicable in sports, but certainly in business as well. So uh, super, super fan nerd question. Uh, how much of a difference does kicking in a, in a, a dome versus like think, thinking about like, like I think about Kinnick in November when those hard winds might be coming through yeah. versus uh, say just going up to the old Metrodome, mm -hmm. making sure that Floyd stays home. Like the, the difference between uh, outdoor kicking and indoor kicking, how big of a difference does that make both physically and mentally? Yeah, certainly um, some of both, right? I think that it's just another element that kickers have to be mindful of. Um, and there's certainly some conditions when they get really nasty that, you know, make it just physically difficult to, to execute a, a kick too, you know? So like yeah, sol me, Soldier kind of, Field at times, right? Yeah, Soldier Field, you know, Kinnick, like you said, in November, um, you know, I played some crazy games in Cleveland where, you know, the the field, the middle of the field is heated, but then you get off to the sideline. It's just all iced out. So you can't even really walk around on the sideline, like all that sort of stuff. I, I always kind of, uh, as a kicker, you know, again, it's kind of a mindset mentality thing. It's like, you know, are you going to sit there? Oh man, it's snowing today. Like I'm screwed. This is going to be awful. You know, my job's harder. You're just kind of like, ah, oh, this is like those sort of games. Like it's kind of funny in an NFL locker room. You get kind of, it's, you kind of see the, the kid and, and the guys come out a little bit, like those nasty rainy games and, snow games which is kind of like, oh this is kind of you know this is kind of fun you know this is like a kid going out and like you know playing with your buddies on a you know on, the, on a muddy field or something and just and just doing it um so you can either you know view it as a fun challenge or you can you know get yourself all bent out of shape about it but uh yeah you know saw pretty much all the different conditions kicking in a dome is ideal i think it probably over time you know it's probably a five percent advantage for the guys that have a chance to do it on a regular basis um you know, I'm a big fan of the natural, natural grass surfaces. I was kind of torn up when Kinnick decided to go to, to artificial grass. I felt like, you know, our style of football, the way we play is kind of fit for, for the, you know, the real grass environment. I'd love to see them go back to that at some point in time, but um, yeah, it's uh, the, the, the domes are certainly an advantage for a kicker. So uh, you were, so you're on the team, uh, the, the 2002 season, were you able to witness uh, was there any footage uh, in the locker room of the Iowa fans taking the uh, uh, the goalposts for a ride at, at the Metrodome? 
Yeah, we you know certainly saw that went back to 2002 recording, and you know I think that's one of them. That's you know one of those YouTube videos that floats around out there every now and then too. But um, yeah, that was a classic, classic Iowa moment there. Getting that, trying to get those goalposts up out of there. I think they're probably fueled by a few few Budweisers along the way too. But um, yeah, that's a, a a fun memory. Yeah, I was I was living in Minneapolis at the time at the game, but we actually left before the. We, we didn't get to witness it live, so it was uh, it was fun to hear about. Yeah. Uh, Nate, one of the things I try to cover with with guests, too, is a uh, notion of advice. And uh, so sometimes it's the form of something we receive from a mentor that, as we get older, we, we continue to unpack it, that some wisdom there. Or it might be, uh, and I'm stealing from Austin Cleon's Steal Like an Artist. He says when we're giving advice, we're just talking to our younger self. So... Is there either good advice that you received that you would share with entrepreneurs, business folks, or advice you wish you would have had? Yeah, it's a great question. I've been really lucky. I think back to your, your earlier question about, you know, the reason to move back to Iowa city. This is such a great, you know, not that it isn't that way in California or elsewhere, but just, you know, being connected to more people and having a lot of great mentors around me. I mean, the a transition from, you know, the NFL, you know, onto a new business, you know, you know, it has, it has some challenges, you know, but it, it's, uh, it's always great to have some mentors around me to kind of help think through that and provide advice. I think some of the best advice I got, you know, in and around my kind of professional transition was, you know, you, you can only think so much about something in the abstract, you know, about what it is you want to do with your life or these sort of things. And you just got to get about doing it, you know, and, and experiencing it. And, and understanding that it's like, it's okay to just go and not everything needs to be permanent. You know, you make some of these choices, which can seem daunting, like, you know, they're going to dictate the rest of your life, but really it's just, you know, that next step or that next chapter. And then there can be another chapter after that, you know? So that advice around just kind of getting out, experiencing it, doing it, get your hands dirty a little bit um, and going from there. And then just also have a lot of good mentors around me. I think people that I really admire, that I think has been kind of a backbone for me post NFL. It's just this idea of, you know, if you're in business, you know, business also needs to be rooted in, you know, not only return on investment, but a re return, return on community and for community, um, you know, so creating and being part of businesses that treat people with respect that, you know, are contributing something to the, you know, good community, you know, stewards and philanthropists, but also just mindful of, you know, making a positive impact on, on community. And then this idea of like, yeah, there's, shareholders in business um but there's also a lot of stakeholders you know so um and both should be and we get taught at business school over here at tippy you know like you know business 101 is you know the reason why businesses exist is to maximize shareholder value you know but i think i think things are changing a little bit i think smart capitalism um in this era which the way it should be it needs to be mindful of of all the stakeholders whether that's uh you know employees or or your community um, obviously your customers and those sort of things. And I think, again, back to the process versus the result. I mean, if you take care of all those things, I think it's only going to help, help your shareholders in the end. Right. Um, I think that's some really good, more businessy advice that I've gotten and people that always sort of bring that perspective into the work that, that we're doing. Cause you know, in business, you can always kind of get, I mean, there's the practical element. You gotta, you know, keep the lights on and the doors open and you gotta make a profit. That's, that's what makes a business go. But you also need to be mindful and considerate of, of those other elements as well. Thank you very much. And uh, yeah, and thanks for all that you're doing 
for the Iowa City community. Uh, it was a pleasure having you here, and I really appreciate you sharing your journey. Yeah, thanks, Matt. I really enjoyed it.